our trustees, we all sort of, you know, use both head and heart in our decision making. So don't um, send us 10 pages of really dense text that has absolutely no imagery or no example of, of the kind of work that you do. Really bring it, use, use that space to bring it to life visually as well. Hey everyone, my name is Alicia Miranda and welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors. I'm the chief executive here at IG and we're a London-based social impact strategy consultancy on a mission to bridge the gap between fundraisers, businesses, and philanthropists. At IG, we have unique insight into both donors and fundraisers and want to help them better understand each other. And so, we bring you season two of What Donors Want, our fresh, dynamic, and slightly irreverent view into major gifts fundraising, straight from the donor's mouth. Welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel Stephenson Chef, the producer and host of the show, and I'm so excited to share this next episode with you. Like last time, this episode is generously sponsored by the Siegel Family Foundation, and we're incredibly grateful for their partnership. So I'm joined here now by my colleague, Yasmin Awad, who's going to tell you a little more about today's guests. Thanks, Rachel. So today on the show, we're speaking with the Garfield Weston Foundation, a family-founded charitable grant-making foundation which supports a wide range of causes across the UK, donating over £70 million annually. It was established in 1958 by the Weston family and is one of the largest charitable institutions in the UK, with a total donation history of over £1 billion since its founding. Almost 2,000 charities across the UK benefit each year from grants made by Garfield Weston, ranging from small community and volunteer projects to large national organizations. The trustees have a preference for charities directly delivering services and activities to those in need and are especially keen to see applications from charities in the welfare, youth and community sectors and also in regions of economic disadvantage. Today, we are thrilled to be speaking with Philippa Charles, the Foundation's Director, and Flora Craig, the Foundation's Head of Grants, to get a glimpse behind the scenes of Garfield Weston's grant-making approach. Should we give them a call? Let's do it! Welcome, Philippa and Flora, to this episode of What Donors Want. Thank you so much for being on our show. Pleasure. It's a pleasure. So as you may know, we always start our episodes off with, with something that actually has nothing to do with philanthropy or fundraising or grant making. And we call it the get to know you speed round of questions. And the whole idea behind it and how it was originated is we love to promote the idea that donors and, and people who actually work in foundations and, and institutions are just people. And that that's a really important and kind of humbling note to start off on uh, when you're building partnerships. So we're going to speed fire some questions at you. They're, they're very silly. You can say the first thing that comes to your mind and um, you know no wrong answers it's all good and we can go from there does that sound okay sure yep okay so the first question is for philippa if you could have any superpower what would it be uh i think i'd love to fly next question is for flora what was the last show you watched well i have to say we've all been very stuck on the handmaid's tale here oh my gosh it's been amazing. I don't know yeah. what to do now. It's finished. So, so I have a, a thought for you, which is to read the Testaments, which I just finished this weekend, um, which is Margaret Atwood's sequel to The Handmaid's Tale. It's amazing. Oh, great. Um, like, that, will, that will keep me busy till the next series, probably. Exactly. Um, Philippa, what was the last book you read? 
Oh, it's Michelle Obama's book actually, Becoming, which was fantastic. And then I um, I also listened to it on um, audio because she was the one that read her own book and it was absolutely fantastic both ways. She's oh, really that's interesting. That's amazing. I have it on my shelf as well. Oh, it's a great book. It's worth reading. Uh, Flora, what is yes. your favourite movie? Oh, that's a good question. Um, probably anything by the Coen brothers. Or I have to say, a guilty Christmas treat is always the railway children. You are joking. I love that. Victorian children, steam trains, love it. (laughs) Philippa, what is one place you want to travel to that you haven't yet had a chance to visit? Oh, that's easy because I've actually got it booked. I've always wanted to go to the Galapagos. Flora, what was the last great meal you ate and where did you eat it? Oh, I just love food so much. It's very difficult to kind of distinguish when when I've had good food. Actually, I did go and eat a fantastic meal down in um, Camberwell recently, if we're allowed to advertise places. If I can remember its name, I think it's called uh, Nondine, maybe? It's Kurdish Kurdish food. And was good. Delicious. But I'd recommend anything that Flora makes. She's a really good baker. Philippa, what is your favourite season in the year? Oh, that's impossible. That is impossible. I mean, they're all great for a different reason. I suppose it would be a toss-up between summer and... I love autumn, though, as well. No, I can't answer that question. It's impossible. I think they're all great for completely different reasons. Fair Sorry, enough. That's a cop-out, I know. No, no, that's fair enough. Right, Flora, sunrise or sunset? I think I'm probably more of a sunset kind of person. Cocktails, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Philippa, beach or snow? Oh, I think I'd probably have to say snow. Me too. I totally agree. Yeah. And finally, Flora, coffee yeah. or tea? Tea. Every time. Oh. We're English. <laughs> <laughs> that is it. You have survived the speed round and you totally aced it. Fantastic. Thank you. So the second part of the podcast is all about actually, you know, the philanthropy and the fundraising work that you do at Garfield Weston Foundation. So to really kick us off on that note, Philippa, as the foundation's director and and Flora as the head of grants, can you give us an overview of your primary responsibilities in this role? So I think it's probably better if I sort of answer for all of us at the foundation, because um, I think our ethos is to keep it simple. And really, all of our jobs are the same in that we're here to help support applicants make good applications, but as well as giving the support to the trustees to help them with their decision-making. So we all have those two um, activities very firmly on our desks every day. We might do slightly different things around them, but that's, that's what we are here to do. Mm-hmm. All right, next one is about the family role. So Garfield Weston is a family-founded foundation, as uh, most people might know. Can you speak to this a bit? And what is the role of the family when it comes to strategy setting and decision-making? Yeah, so at the foundation, the family is the foundation. Our trustees are all very highly engaged. They're really hands-on and they they care really deeply about their philanthropy and it shows in everything that we do. Um They're open to new ideas, they're open to suggestions, they like to innovate, but one of the things they're really good at is they see the value in consistency and in doing what works. So whether or not an application is for something that's fashionable, trendy, new, um, you know, they're happy to consider those things, but equally happy to consider things that, frankly, just make a difference and are proven to make a difference and don't have to be dressed up in new clothing to look good. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they're thoughtful, they're independent, they like to think of themselves as well-informed. They're not experts and they're not trying to be. Um, so, you know, the job 
we have Flora, as Flora explained at the foundation in part, is to support them to ensure that they're as well equipped as possible to make what are often pretty tough decisions around um, uh, the grants that, that they, uh, they see. Mm-hmm. And that's super interesting the, to kind of get a behind the scenes view of, of the, the family and the trustees and then also your roles within the foundation. How many other team members approximately do you work with on the day to day? So we have, um, well, we have both what you'd call kind of visible staff like myself and Flora and other grants managers. We also have, um, you know, absolutely essential, um, but perhaps less visible staff to support our finance and obviously our office services. Um, So there are actually quite a few of us that, um, you know, do a great job here to help keep the wheels on that may not necessarily be as visible to the outside world. Um, Because the family are very hands-on, they are a resource that we draw on every day. Um, You know, we share offices with them. uh, They're here all the time. So we don't have to wait months before we see them to ask an opinion. If we see something that we're not sure of or that looks controversial, we just ask. And it it makes that relationship much more fluid. It helps decision making um, to be more timely as well. Yeah, that, that's really, really interesting. It's, um, it is quite rare, actually, for the family to sit within that same office. And it's, it's very cool that you get to have that fluidity, because I, I imagine it's, it makes things much more efficient, but also uh, more interesting for both sides. And more fun, actually, too. Yeah. They're really fun to work with. They care a lot about what they're doing, but they don't take themselves too seriously. So, you know, we are able to have a bit of a laugh as well as, you know, knuckle down to the serious job that we're doing. That's fantastic. So unlike many foundations, Garfield Weston actually has an open application portal on its website that invites applications from organizations under what you categorize as regular grants. So it says under 100K on the website. So this can be both a blessing and a curse for fundraisers, right? Because it's easier to apply, but it's harder to stand out when relationship building isn't a prerequisite to submission. So our question for you is, when does relationship building come into the grant? process for you and who on the team is responsible for that considering the dynamic between the family and and you all in the same office? Yeah so um, the idea that it's just about relationships is slightly uncomfortable for us because that somehow implies that um, you know the approach of one particular person is somehow the magic ingredient that causes the trustees to give which actually isn't the case. Um, What our trustees are looking for is to really understand what an organisation is trying to do, the need that it's trying to fulfil, how effective their approach to meeting that need is, all of those sorts of things. So for us, the relationship we may have with individuals is more about ensuring we understand the organisation, the beneficiaries and how things work, rather than necessarily holding one individual on a pedestal and funding because they are there or not funding because they aren't there. Right. That's really interesting. And so to follow up from that, when an organ, you know, any organization that meets your criteria, of course, when any one of those is able to apply, do you have any tips for fundraisers on how they can make their application stand out in a written context when you first come across it? I think um, for, for us, the most important thing is that they are telling us their story and they're making it really clear and telling us why their project is important. Um, I think it's not a question of sort of standing out, you know, trying to sort of dress it up or make it particularly different or unusual. We're we're reading applications all the time. And I have to say probably the the ones that we read, which are almost the most enjoyable, are the ones that clearly have read our guidelines and have put in everything that we've asked them to put in in an application and told it in a way that paints a fantastic picture for us so we really can understand the organisation. 
Right. Um, I think, you know, the same advice applies probably in all applications, you know, make it really clear and also get to the point. We allow you up to 10 pages to make an application, but don't take the first five describing the sort of general context of what you do. Really tell us what you do up front because I think otherwise... The, the, the really important stuff can get lost in all the contextual stuff that people put into their applications. Yeah, absolutely. That's really good advice. And in terms of when people submit applications through that open portal, would you advise organizations to go ahead and submit directly if they do meet all that criteria or and or would you rather them reach out as well to kind of cultivate you on a more personal level to put a human but, face behind that? No, they, they should absolutely go ahead and apply. So we... Okay. You know, visits and meetings and conversations we have are always done in the context of an actual application because one of the things we take seriously is about being respectful of charity's time. So while it would be lovely to sit and have coffee with every person who would like to come and talk to us, the idea is that if we need to have more of a conversation, it's centred around the organization, what it needs, and we're using that time to focus in on the things that matter. That's really, really useful and interesting for listeners. And I'm thinking particularly because we've we've interviewed a few family foundations on the podcast already, and there's a huge divergence of views around that. So some foundations say, you know, we just get way too many applications. We have to prioritize them in some way. So it's usually prioritized by the people that we're familiar with. And you're saying kind of the opposite of that, that it's, you know, if, if you meet the criteria, you should apply and we'll consider you and we, and we want to be mindful of your time. So I think that's hugely valuable for listeners just to remember that every foundation is different and that, you know, there's, um, you really have to do your research and make sure that you're applying in in the way and kind of the method that is most appropriate. So yes, you're you're absolutely right. There is no one right way or one best way to do it. I think every foundation is different, but we hope from our perspective that, that our approach is good news for people actually, because it doesn't mean that they have to know us or know a staff member or a family member to have the same fair chance as everybody else. One of the, there's a couple of principles that really run through everything we do. One of them is about transparency and the other is about fairness. And we absolutely want great organisations to have a fair chance at being able to apply for the funding. And that doesn't depend on having had funding in the past. That's fantastic. Thanks so much for sharing that. All right, next question is about due diligence. So can you give us a glimpse into your typical due diligence and decision-making process? So once a proposal has been submitted, what happens next? And uh, who are the internal stakeholders that need to be bought in? And what else goes into the process? So in terms of just to talk about the nuts and bolts of how we do it, once you've submitted your application online, it comes into our mega database where we hold all our applications and it's checked by one of our administrative staff, normally our operations manager, who has very um, sharp eyes. So she, if she thinks anything is missing or hasn't been sent quite according to the um, guidance, then she will come back straight away and ask for additional information. Once we've got everything we need and we, we checked it's eligible and all the, all the sort of straightforward checks we need to do, it comes through to for review status by a grants manager um, or any of the grants team. And um, that's another opportunity where we might, when we get to look at it, we'll come back and maybe ask questions. We might ask for additional information. We might come and meet that applicant we might just have a call with them Um, but there's another opportunity to interrogate what's been sent in so it's not just being looked at without um, consideration Mm -hmm. and once we've done our piece of work reviewing the application it then goes to a trustee for a decision Um, we say that it takes up to four months for a decision that's partly because um, of our internal processes 
sometimes people will get a decision much sooner, but we, we allow enough time also because we want fundraisers to plan well in advance, not to put in an application in September for a project that's in December because we can't guarantee we can get the decision in time for them and we just think it's good practice for fundraisers out there to be thinking carefully about the plan, strategic plan ahead for their fundraising. Mm-hmm. So allow at least four months. Um, and we would have, you know, we, we deal with all our applications in date order. So we're not sort of separating them out into particular categories or particular regions. We're not sort of pitting one type of t- similar types of organisations against each other. We're, we are looking at them as they come in, as they're in, on their own individual merits. And you mentioned um, about site visits. You say sometimes we do visit their sites, sometimes we don't. How important is that for you in in your due diligence? They're often very important. It does depend on the size of the project and its complexity. So there are some things we don't need to visit because actually they are pretty straightforward and simple. And that might be, for example, putting a new roof on the village hall. Um, You know, we don't necessarily need to go and see that village hall and the, you know, the hole in the roof to uh, be able to make a decision. But it is, uh, for the more complex projects and the larger things we look at, invariably useful to um, see the project for real and and this is not just about the people involved in delivering but often meeting the beneficiaries is massively helpful even the geographical context there may be some sort of social factors around what they're doing that matter so seeing the location and the area in which an organization operates is really important so so we will absolutely ask for a visit um, if we feel it's going to you know add to um, the trustees ability to make a quality decision right that's yeah I think that's going to be really helpful for listeners as well and and a question as well so you you know you've had a site visit the due diligence has been done by the team once that proposal with with all those factors checked gets to a trustee's eyes and is kind of discussed at board level is it is there a high chance of it succeeding or or is there still um, a chance that you know still a a margin for error at that stage there are no guarantees that is perhaps the the key um thing that we would have to say to everybody and we don't actually work out our kind of percentage chances of success if one was to put it in those terms because we actually think it would be really unhelpful to give people a figure because they might either be disheartened or overly optimistic and, and we don't want to do that to people um you know, we will only go and visit something that we're genuinely interested in. So in that respect, um, back to the principle about being fair and respectful of people's time, we're clearly not going to turn up for a visit if it's something that, you know, doesn't fit our guidelines. But equally, a visit does not guarantee a grant. Right. That's really interesting. And I think that's a useful learning for listeners as well, is just about how important it is to systematize fundraising behind the scenes and kind of have a, you know, a standard process for a site visit more or less so that it doesn't create a huge drain on their resources and they, they know how to do that. But it also provides a, a really interesting and bespoke experience for funders who are considering them because it is a, a fine balance of managing that. Our next question, so you've, you've mentioned a lot about project funding in, in your site visits, you know, the project of fixing the village roof or making sure that fundraisers or organizations rather plan at least four months in advance for that. Our next question, though, is about unrestricted funding. So on your website, the Garfield Weston Foundation categorizes funding as either capital, revenue, i.e. unrestricted core costs, or project 
And many charities will view that second category of unrestricted core costs as, you know, so to speak, the holy grail. But often funders won't support them in this way until trust has built up over time. So we're wondering, what is your take on this? And do you have any advice for charities looking to secure unrestricted support from your foundation or, you know, for that matter, foundations at large? So I... I think it's important to say that we really welcome applications for core costs and unrestricted funding. The trustees are really aware of the fact that actually there are lots of great charities out there doing really good work that just need some help with paying the bills, keeping the lights on, making sure the room's warm enough for the the, um, beneficiaries to come and use the space. So, um, you know, it's it's welcomed. It's not something that's unusual for us. We see those applications all the time. we always say to charities they should ask for what they need the most. And if unrestricted core cost is what they need the most, that should be the centre focus of their application. Um, in order to make it stand out, obviously the important thing is we need them to provide a really clear budget, which shows why they need that help with core cost. You know, who else is funding them? Why do they have this particular gap? Is there a particular reason why they're coming to us at this point? We also, you know, as part of it, a part of looking at it, we want to see a robust fundraising plan as well. So it's not just we've got a huge gap, we'd like you to fill it. There's a kind of plan in action about who else might fill it, where else mm-hmm. are they being our local people supporting them as well. So, you know, the two those two things, the expenditure and the income go hand in hand. We do consider, as well as part of unrestricted funding, we um, consider multi-year um, uh, multi-year applications. Those tend to be more after we might have had the experience of funding an organisation, for example, for a year, just so that we've had a chance to see what they're like, they've reported on what they've done. But we do encourage people to then come back if they'd like and ask for multi-year funding. But again, you know, one of the key things about that is making sure that they've been really clear, clear about their sustainability beyond a period of time that we might give them a grant so that we're not in a position where, you know, if they then come back for another multi-year grant, you know, we are the only people who are going to fill this gap and it's going to be real trouble if we decide to say no that time. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very much about um, uh, charities being really clear and honest about their finances and, you know, open about the things that they are facing as well. So, you know, we, we're, we're prepared to do the stuff that isn't the most exciting. That's great. Our next question for you. So the majority of Garfield Weston's money comes from Whittington Investments, where the foundation is the majority shareholder. And uh, for listeners who might not know, Whittington in, earn, in turn owns a majority share of associated British food. So that includes brands like Primark. So we're wondering, that investment relationship is is actually quite rare among foundations, and and we're we're wondering how it impacts the way that you might approach grant making and thinking about impact, if it does at all. Well, actually, there's a a very clear separation between the investments in our portfolio and the foundation, and that's, frankly, good governance. It's really important. You know, Associated British Foods is a FTSE 30 company. It's regulated on the the stock market like uh, like other FTSE businesses. So, um, you know, there isn't an overt connection between them other than, you know, our ability to make grants is directly dependent on the success of the business. And there is an amazing symbiotic relationship between the two, um, you know, the, the family set this this foundation up 61 years ago, and it was an incredible decision to place 80% of the family wealth into this trust for the benefit of the country. And the structure, as you say, is very simple. They put 80% of, of shares in their family business into, into the foundation. Um, so what 
what I would say is the connection between the two really is the family ethos. Um, but in all operational matters, as you'd expect from you know really good governance, actually the two operate entirely independently. Right. I mean, that, that's great to hear. And it's just interesting to get a, a look behind the scenes of that. Next, we want to know a bit more about mistakes, uh, especially during the cultivation phase. So what is the most common mistake the fundraisers or organizations make with the Garfield Western Foundation? So, I, I mean, I think this is probably more for us about mistakes in application because we've sort of touched on the, the cultivation aspect of, of, of how we work. Um, the, the biggest mistake for us is people don't read the guidelines. And I, I mean, it almost sounds funny to say it out loud because they're there. We work hard on them to try and make them as simple as possible. But it's almost like people think it's a trick to read them and follow them. Right. But really, they, they, it's, not, it's not a sort of trick question. They're there and contain within them, you know, a sort of almost a structure for your proposal narrative. You know, it's, it has every section that we need you to cover in an application to us. So um, don't be afraid to just read the guidelines and use them as the sort of scaffolding of your proposal. Um, a thing that makes our eyes roll slightly is, for some reason, lots of people maybe forget, but they don't total up their budgets. So they might send a huge, <laughs> complex budget. That is Flora's pet hate, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> And I always say, if I have to get out my calculator, you're probably in trouble because then I, I've got to add it up. <laughs> I'd much rather that's not good. The applicant adds it up and <laughs> makes sure that they they're absolutely sure they they understand it and have got it really clear for us. Right. And I suppose following on from you know a very simple mistake that like adding up your budgets um, is knowing your figures. So I, I you know. Obviously, it tends to be fundraisers who will actually submit the application. They are the contact on that application. If I call them up to talk them through the budget, I do expect them to know that budget really well and understand it. It's not helpful if, for example, they've just been down the corridor, asked the finance director to produce the figures, put it into the application, and they can't really talk to it. So I think it's really important that, um, you know, when you submit the application and your name is on it, you can talk to every aspect of that application. Of right. course, you can go back to your colleagues and, and get more clarification, but it just always sometimes feels a bit alarming if someone says, oh, I just don't know, I'll have to come back to you when I've spoken to somebody else, because it makes you wonder, well, if these figures aren't clear enough to you, then how can they be clear enough to us? That's, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's so interesting to hear your point about the budgets and totaling, you, you know, making it as easy as possible for you to understand what they need and why. And I've had that experience as well in reviewing applications. And sometimes they don't even send it through in an Excel sheet. So you can't total it up yourself. And it's in a kind of PDF format. So you do have to get your calculator out and it becomes... Exactly. Very exactly. tedious. So if you don't total it, at least give it in an Excel editable format where people can kind of fiddle around with formulas and get the numbers that they need. I think also on a positive side, I think one of the things that we would always encourage people to do is really, you know, make the application not only a pleasure to read, but a pleasure to look at. You know, if you put in photos, add in case studies, you know, um, our trustees, we all sort of, you know, use both head and heart in our decision making. So don't um, send us 10 pages of really dense text about a fantastic project that has absolutely no imagery or no example of, of the kind of work that you do really bring it use use that space to bring it to life visually as well mm -hmm. all right next we want to ask about your dream grantee so can you describe your dream fundraiser grantee and what would make them so excellent actually one of the first things i'd say is we meet some phenomenal people at all the time um 
you know, there are a lot of people all over the country who work incredibly hard on behalf of their organisations. So, you know, it's a it's a real privilege to be able to, to see that in action. And the people we, you know, we come across, a, you know, our dream grantee is, you know, committed, professional, organised, um, and they demonstrate a real passion for, for what they do. Um, and, you know, as Flora said, they, they read the guidelines, so they, they know what we need from them. And they are the, the voice of their beneficiaries. They can talk to us about why their work is needed, um, certainly in the first instance, um, you know, in a way that can really engage, inspire and excite us. I think also I'd say that really good fundraisers are people who are very good at knowing when to step back and let the project shine. So putting other people forward who can really represent the project. So, of course, they're absolutely the key person in terms of making the application, getting in front of us. But actually, you know, sometimes, particularly, say, for example, on a visit, you know, bringing in... putting in front of us the beneficiaries you know making sure that we really meet the real the, the real people behind the project as well the program managers mm-hmm. um so they you know they've got to be sort of forward facing but also know when to just retire quietly in, in, in the background mm-hmm. absolutely and i think it's also very interesting to, to hear you say this because it's it's so clear that having a dynamic fundraiser that, as you said, is engaging, is exciting, knows when to let the project shine, knows their budget figures if you call them up and ask them about you know their totals and they don't have to go and, and always consult with someone else for the answer. Um, but at the same time, you know, before when you said that relationship building isn't a prerequisite to a, a successful application, that the project and the organization has to stand on its own, but the fundraiser also has to bring it to life. So I think it's a really interesting um, dynamic there about uh, you know it should it is about the organization but there needs to be that person who is communicating with you and, and kind of pitching it and letting the project letting the the charity kind of sparkle so to speak so that's that's really great to hear so we've spoken a lot about cultivation and decision making and what makes a great fundraiser You've also said that, you know, you sometimes consider multi-year support, but usually there's a kind of a, a, a year period where you pilot a grant model, so to speak, and then might might consider committing to an organization in the longer term. So our question for you is, once a grant has been committed, it's been signed off, approved by the trustees, the, the check has been signed, what are the common mistakes that you see organizations making with your foundation that might turn you off from committing additional support or perhaps entering into a, a longer multi-year partnership? I think this is best summed up with by not doing what you said you'd do. Um, So when a grant is made, you know, we try to keep our terms and conditions pretty straightforward and simple. And and part of it is about keeping us informed, letting us know if something has changed, um, providing a report at the end of the grant period um, and keeping in touch with us about your activities. Maybe if you have any events, by all means, invite us. Uh, If we can't go, um, you know, that doesn't mean that we haven't logged the fact that that activity is taking place. So, Really, for us, it's it's about um, you know reporting on time when we asked you, telling us if something has changed, sharing with us your learning. Not everything goes according to plan and perfectly, and we understand that just as uh, every organisation does. And we want to learn too. Um, what is uh, a bit of a killer is when there's just complete silence, um, and we find out things after the fact, or we find out things through a third party. Um, you know, those are the obvious problems that that we can encounter, and that those sorts of factors would would be the the thing that 
would certainly cause us to pause for thought um, in terms of any future applications. Mm -hmm. And if an organization did have a relatively significant change in plan, so they proposed a project, but then something happened out of their control, maybe in the external context, that meant that they had to shift their focus. Is it as simple as them coming to you and saying, hey, this is the case, this is our plan, are you comfortable with it? What do you think? Is that all it takes? It's not complicated. I mean, that is where a relationship does count. So we do want to know what's going on. We entirely understand things change. That does happen. It, It happens, you know, the time not not every day but um it is not uncommon and depending on the size and scale of the grant made and the time period left um, we may be able to get a fairly quick decision for you if it's a very significant sum of money then it might be something we would need to take to one of our major board meetings but again we would we would tell an organization what the time frames are but yeah of course if something changes then we would rather know about it because Ultimately, our trustees want to be good stewards of the funds that are entrusted to their care. So they care deeply about making sure the money is going, you know, to work that is going to make a difference. So if something changes, definitely we need to know. Mm-hmm. Great. So you've given us quite a lot of uh, useful insights over the last uh, 30 minutes. So finally, what is one key thing that you want listeners to take away from this conversation? I think it's very simple, actually, that we, you know, our lights are on. We actively welcome applications. Um, you know, we really do want people to apply who have exciting projects, who have uh, identified a need um, that, uh, you know, they have an effective solution for. So, you know, please go to our website, please read our guidance and by all means apply. Fabulous. I would agree with that. <laughs> fabulous well we will definitely i mean for listeners we will post uh the link to garfield weston's website and application process so you can read all about that online and flora and philippa one last question for you as well to follow up on that is one piece of fundraising advice one nugget or gem that you want listeners to walk away from this conversation remembering what would that be I think the challenge is every foundation is different. Right. So if if we were to offer any negative advice, it's to really pay attention to what that particular foundation is looking for, because it won't be the same as a different one. And that, that is, therein lies the skill and the challenge of their job as fundraisers. But it also, um, you know, gives them the opportunity to, you know, be flexible and creative as well. And I, I suppose I would add to that, that it's always worth spending time getting your case for support and or your story however you describe it really really clear not just with yourself as a fundraiser but with the whole organization you need everyone to be able to sort of describe yourself in the same words because I think that that's where fundraising does fall down is that you might have a fantastic written application and then a meeting where you've got a whole room full of people who feel slightly like they're everything's a little bit off kilter from what um, you've actually read in a piece of paper. So I think that, I think it's really worth spending that time. You know, that it, it's sometimes people think it's a waste of time because it's lots of wordsmithing and spending lots of time on that. But actually, once you've got that really nailed down and everyone believes in it, it is the core of describing yourself and the way that you present yourself across the whole organisation. Find you. And I mean, that's really it from us. Philippa and Flora, thank you so much for your time and for sharing so honestly um, your work and your your advice to fundraisers. I know this is going to be so valuable for our listeners and we really appreciate it. Thank Fantastic. you. Thank you. I think from us an enormous thank you to all the people who are working across the country to do amazing work to, to make other people's lives better. It's incredibly inspiring to, to have a part to play in that. Um, so, you know, those people are making a difference every day. 
um, and we really, really appreciate them. Yes, and I think on top of that, we, we're not here to catch people out. We're here to really help good projects, hopefully get funding. Yeah. Um, you know, that's not, our, our job isn't to kind of tra- we want to trait people yeah, out. We want to see people's lives change for the better and to things continue to improve. And, and we're very passionate about that and we love meeting people who are equally passionate about their work. Well, we're, we're honoured to have you on the show, really. It's, um, it's such a pleasure for us. And thank you for being so open to both the, the questions about your philanthropy, but also the, the scary speed brand. <laughs> I'm still thinking about that meal. Thanks for listening to another episode of What Donors Want. And a huge thank you to Philippa and Flora for their generous time and advice. If you want to learn more about the foundation, you can go to garfieldweston.org. And to learn more about IG or our podcast, you can find us at impactandgrowth.com. Say hello to us on Twitter. Our handle is at IG underscore advisors or grab a coffee or tea with us in London. Stay tuned for more episodes coming your way soon. And a huge thank you again to our official sponsor, the Siegel Family Foundation. As well to all our listeners, thank you again for listening. See you soon. Thank you.